This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. This is Maggie Yankoloska, author of the children's novel The Rat Catcher's Apprentice, talking to Sam Elliott for the Right Way Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Maggie Yankoloska. And hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. The person whom you just heard introducing this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program is none other than tonight's guest, Maggie Yankoloska. Uh, me and Maggie had uh, a chat, a nice discussion about her debut novel, The Rat Catcher's Apprentice. Uh, so The Rat Catcher's Apprentice is set within provincial France in the 17th century, mid to late 17th. 17th century uh, plague era of the 17th century uh, and follows the life of 12 year old Marie who is an incorrigible dreamer at heart uh, kind of has a good optimistic uh, positive spin on her life despite the kind of incredibly bleak circumstances in which she finds herself uh, and then yes everything arises from there some sort of tragedy strikes I don't want to kind of suggest too much as to what happened with the inciting incident but yes so Marie subsequently becomes the titular Ratcatcher's apprentice and from there the story kind of arises and yeah it takes a lot of interesting twists and turns I didn't really know exactly what was going to happen and I was very excited by that I particularly enjoyed the setting as well uh so yeah me and Maggie had an incredible discussion about that so I'd really like you all to give a big digital round of applause to Maggie Young-Kolowska talking to me about her debut novel The Ratcatcher's Apprentice Maggie, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way Podcast program this bitterly cold evening. How are you doing? Doing really well. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you and to do something writerly and to connect with the writing community, um, especially, yeah, especially after a few busy months of juggling mum life and writer life. So it's, it's great to be doing a bit more promo stuff. Brilliant. Well, let's let's get stuck into the uh, the discourse itself, the writerly discourse that we've been waiting for. So, first and foremost, if you've listened to a couple of episodes of the show, you know how I like to start off, and I always like to find out where the story originated from, whether it was a, a particular theme, it was a scene, whether it was a character. So, tell me, Maggie, where did the idea or the genesis, or what was the genesis for the Ratcatcher's Apprentice? Tell us all. Sure. So it all actually began about seven, seven or eight years ago. And I've got a teaching background. So it was during a brainstorming session with a bunch of year eight students. We were writing historical fiction and just brainstorming ideas for possible uh, plot lines. And obviously this is pre-COVID. So I always like to say, no, the novel wasn't inspired by COVID, despite um, there being some similarities uh, so, yeah, during this planning session, someone put out there, uh, child exterminators living in the olden days. And I just thought, oh, that's strange, but that's interesting. Child uh, exterminators. Well, how would that work? How would they uh, live? And was this an actual thing? So, obviously, the class ended. The students moved on, forgot about the lesson. I'm sure they handed in their work and moved on with their lives. And for some strange reason, this idea of olden day child exterminators just kept on niggling at me. And I thought, oh, hang on, there must be something there. But I was quite busy and I just kept on pushing it aside saying, yep, yep, I'll get around to it. And this sort of idea just kept on really, really wanting to be written. So initially it started off as a short story and first I thought it would be about a brother and sister rat catcher 
And as I sat down and started writing what I thought was a short story, uh, my protagonist quickly became Marie. And I decided that she was the more dominant character and her voice was a lot stronger. And this was her story to tell. And initially that story started off with her living in her provincial town in 17th century France, uh, her committing one big mistake, which leads to a punishment, which is her being sent away from home um, to work for a rat catcher. And that was the end uh, to that short story. And as the short story ended with her being sent away from home, I knew there was a lot more to this story. So there was a lot more to tell. This was just the beginning of a much bigger story. And I think the real adventure starts once she's sent away from home and once she meets Gustav and works with him and starts to question the world around her, essentially. I've, you know, I've been doing the show for a long time, and you know, I don't think I've ever had uh, someone whose idea has stemmed from a brainstorming session of some year age students with a creative writing class. So that's really good. That's a first. That's a I show. owe them a lot. Yeah. In hindsight. Yeah. Brilliant. Look, um, I want to know what about the, the was there a sort of uh, historical research element that you sort of under, underwent? You mentioned that it took, you know, years to or gestate in your brain, but did you, did you do a lot of research for it? I got the kind of impression that there must've been some fair bit of research that went into it. But then I wondered if that was sort of, then hinder the imagination? How did that, how did you go about doing that, mate? Well, I've always uh, written historical short stories or historical work, and I'm a big historical buff and a big historical reader. Um, and I did use my own background knowledge, but at the same time, I did have to use research. Mm. And while researching, I was really mindful of not making the novel, which is for children, essentially, research heavy or mm. dense. Because, you know, research is there to help, but not for it to become like a big sort of lecture. So I did have to look up rat catching, uh, the business around it and um, plagues, obviously. So I've got my notes here still. So um, yeah, even though the plague is fictional, mm. um, it is based on uh, plagues which did occur around this time and place. And one famous example is the plague in the English town Eam, which is kind of the central plot of Geraldine Brooks's novel Year of Wonders, if, you, if you've read that. And this takes place around the same time as The Rat Catcher's Apprentice. So that was a great sort of reference point for me. And also I looked up that during the years 1665 and 1666 in London, um, a fifth of the population actually died because of the plague. Mm. So... Um, yeah, it was a really, really big issue and it caused, yeah, over 100,000 people to die in just one city. Yep, right. uh, also, witchcraft, which is uh, central to the novel or the fear of witches, that was partnered with, you know, the plague. So who is responsible for the plague? It must be witches. And this is all uh, based on real historical evidence. Um, and yeah, rat catching actually occurred as, as late as the 19th century and early 20, 20th century. Um, Queen Victoria actually had her favourite or preferred rat catcher and his name was Jack Black. And he would go rat catching in very nice manners um, for the aristocracy and he would get, you know, different coloured rats and breed them and come up with all kinds of different rat uh, 
not species, but different rabbit breeds, I guess. And one of his patrons were uh, Beatrix Potter. So okay. that was really, that was interesting to discover about, uh, yeah, rat catching as late as the 19th century. So 200 years after Gustave and Marie do it. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, and it's interesting also that you mentioned earlier in your answer there where you were saying that because it was, it was you were mindful of a child or younger adult audience, then you didn't want to obviously bog them down too much historical sort of research. Um, with, with that then, I mean, just obviously then you've decided all these sort of fascinating examples. Was there difficulties then in determining what kind of went in and what didn't, what was sort of essential to the narrative and what wasn't, or you didn't kind of find that altogether too, too sort of difficult? Was it something that you, you paired back in uh, future drafts or how'd that kind of work for you then, Maggie? In earlier drafts, I think there were some Goria Nalia bits which were involved are basically about the plague and how it made people sick and them yeah. dying and their sores and their swellings mm. and the smell and, and that sort of stuff. So in the latest sort of drafts, I have to say, well, this might be a bit too much. Let's take some of this description away. It's not really essential to the plot. The message is still there about the plague being horrible and lots mm. of people getting sick and unfortunately dying. At the same time, as as a teacher who has worked with this sort of age group, I know it's doing readers a bit of a disservice if you try and coddle them or yep. protect them from the real world because this is a historical novel. This is what sadly happened in history and readers are drawn to the darker side of things or the, the darker side of lives um, when it comes to themes. And also with everything young readers have experienced in the last two years. So this is a plague novel. And with the pandemic and plague we've had, um, young people like Marie, they've experienced different kinds of losses. So losses of freedom, losses of a sense of normalcy as well, and even physical losses. So losses of loved ones as well. So it would be doing readers a real disservice if you try and protect them or try and shield them from the harsh part of reality, I suppose. It did, that dovetails really, really nicely to my next question, actually, because I was going to ask, I never felt, um, when I first read the sort of premise, I was, I love the setting and I love the characters and it didn't, to me, read as a premise or it read as a premise that might be potentially difficult to kind of frame for, a child, child, or younger adult audience, because of just by virtue of the um, how bleak sure. the setting was. So I wondered, and it's interesting because I wanted to know, yeah, if you did have that sort of at the forefront of your mind, the consideration with writing it was that was that was it something in which you wrote the first draft and yeah, it contained goriness, and then the following drafts thereafter is something in which you paired back. Did you have to have like the equivalent of? I don't know, like child sensitivity readers or was it just from your, your, your work as being a teacher as to knowing what the sensibilities of the kind of younger audience was? I never had sort of sensitivity readers. And to mm. be honest, when I first sat down and wrote this novel, I just didn't have an age group in mind. My mm. focus was just on the plot and I was really, really plot driven and really invested in these characters and, and this story. So after I wrote the first or second draft, I had to sit back and think, well, who is this novel for? And it does appeal to a lot of adults, I find. Um, me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm putting me. So 
if it makes it a bit, you know, universal or it makes it sort of jump between children's and it has a wide reach, then that's amazing. Initially, I thought it might be maybe more young adult, but with my protagonist's age, I decided that it's probably upper middle grade. Mm. But yeah, I never sat down and wrote oh, and thought, well, let's sit down and write a children's story. The, the story sort of was there or the inspiration was there. Mm. And once I looked at the finished product, I thought this might be for lower, lower high school students. But I'm glad it has, yeah, a wider appeal. Do you feel that in your experience or knowledge there that it's kind of the, the lines have been blurred, they're not as clearly delineated in terms of what defines a uh, book that is meant for specifically um, young adults or children or middle grade? Do you think that the that times have kind of gotten a little bit more blurry in the best possible way for for genres to kind of just encompass or be featured for all sorts of demographics, not necessarily just one particular small, you know, like 18-month to two-year age bracket of children? What do you think, Maggie? Sure. Um, I'm all for, you know, those brackets or those lines not being so rigid. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, what's wrong with adults reading young adult books or middle grade books and mm. so on? It's hard to sort of group people in, in a particular box, I guess. And, um, you know, as far, as far as when I was pitching, I was like, oh, young adult books, the protagonist has to be roughly 16 or 17. And that's all a well, I sort of knew about all the rules or the word limits. If it's between this many words, it has to be middle grade. Or if it's, you know, 60 to 80,000, well, it's more of a young adult book. And like you said, yeah, my book feels a bit untraditional in a sense. And yeah, that was one of the reasons for, for it being rejected along the way, I think. So, you know, I heard your writing is too formal, being one uh, rejection or, you know, it's too dark or there's no place for it on the market. So, yeah. So I guess it's, it's one of those books that's not, I don't know if it doesn't fit quite well in one particular box or it goes across a few boxes. Well, that's the best way to be. I'm, so, I'm glad that it doesn't sound like you kind of went back to the drawing board then when you were kind of receiving sort of feedback that was saying it was too dark, etc. Because yeah um i'm glad that you, it, that's the impression i'm getting anyway i don't think that it's got you kind of like going to uh, retool it accordingly kind of um like you said um i think children young adults etc they all they don't want to be coddled or talked the equivalent of talked down to when it comes to a narrative i think uh they want to, they don't want their kind of intelligence insulted by presenting this sort of uh grossly distorted or inaccurate sort of worldview or depiction of the world uh for them what do you think Oh, no, exactly. So having worked with with teenagers, um, yeah, you realise how aware of the world they are, really. So mm. as a writer, it's not something, it's not my job to be a teacher or a parent. My job is to entertain and enlighten, hopefully, and share with them a love for for reading and for literature. So... I tried to stay as true as I could to my plot and my premise without compromising that vision because along the way when you get, you know, friends or people in the writing community to read your manuscript and you get so much conflicting advice, it's really, really hard uh, whichever to listen and when to sort of remain true to your original vision, I guess. 
Yeah, very much. I mean, you've talked about a lot of literature, a lot of writing. Um, for me, one element that kind of really shone through throughout was Marie's love of storytelling, being an incorrigible sort of dreamer and storyteller. And uh, she gave these kind of, I've likened them to gifts to pretty much every other sort of major character at some point or another, whether it's Henry or Gustav, etc. Um, what do you think it is that is to do with dreaming and sort of storytelling that allows us to kind of weather some of the darkest and bleakest sort of settings and circumstances that we possibly can go through as humans, Maggie? Oh, that's a big philosophical question almost. Um, yeah, for me personally, like storytelling, whether, whether it was reading or writing, has always been a big companion to me. And it is for Marie in a sense as well. You know, at the start of the novel, she's very aware of her limitations and what's allowed and what's not allowed. And as she discovers the world around her, uh, she she becomes sort of aware of the possibilities. And one of these possibilities is uh, sharing stories or potentially even writing her own stories, which is something that's sort of initially frowned upon by her parents and her, and even she herself is initially critical that stories are silly or, you know, who's going to listen to my stories? And the beauty of storytelling or fiction or prose is that it can sort of save us from our darkest moments or be that companion we never really had. And that's what storytelling does, does for Marie, I think. So when things seem to be at their bleakest, some of the other characters, she, she tries to comfort them through, through storytelling. Um, and for me initially, sorry. No, 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 no. Topic. Uh, for me, originally, I started with writing short stories and poems when I was, yeah, in early primary school. And this was in my overseas in Macedonian as well. So for me, storytelling has sort of jumped from language to, to language. And it's something that I've always carried with me. And it has been kind of like a lifelong companion. That's the best lifelong companion. And I mean, it definitely does uh, give us the most optimistic sort of outlook in the bleakest circumstances and can allow us to prevail, I guess, over some of the, the worst sort of uh, nightmarish type situations that we can possibly find ourselves in. But then, so I wanted to call, also talk about the flip side of that. So we've talked about the positivity of storytelling, but then I also wanted to talk about the negativity of terror and what that can cause within a people because I think storytelling can unite a people and so can terror in the kind of like diametrically opposed opposite way of kind of, what do you think it is? And I mean, you've got several examples there. You also mentioned Ursula when you were, uh, Maggie, when you were doing research as well with the sort of witch hunting, et cetera. What do you think it is about terror of the unknown, whether it's witch hunting, whether it's the plague that kind of can so quickly and collectively unite a people in sort of the worst way possible? What is it about terror that does that? Yeah, so even thinking about the pandemic we've experienced the last two years, that really showed the best in humanity and the absolute worst. So when you think mm. of, you know, people stripping bare supermarkets and being so quick to sort of, sort of, yeah, to panic and to go to desperate means, uh, yeah, the unknown. It's, ooh, how can I answer this question? Uh, what is it about the unknown? I, I guess it, it's our imagination, like you said. So it allows, it weaves um, the most horrible situation to ever exist. Mm. Uh, yeah. 
So for example, we see the characters being driven to absolute desperation and panic and going to sort of horrible means to try and stay safe or protected um, in the novel, which deals with, yeah, when the plague comes about. So, uh, sorry, various treatments were attempted, smoke cleansers, bleeding with leeches to show that, yeah, how desperate people were, arsenic and vinegar. And, yeah, I, I don't know what, what else I can say no, for this question, unfortunately. I just, no, no, I just, I just found it really, really interesting because you kind of encompass the two there. There's the highs and the lows of the sort of, uh, not just like our feelings in which we feel, but also the sort of human condition as well. So I just found it really interesting and kind of wanted to ask you about that too. I mean, another example. Yeah, you go. Sorry. I suppose uh, when it is such a time of panic, um, any difference is magnified. So you see people who are different in Marie's society. So the people who were sentenced to death for being witches, hmm. I think they're just briefly mentioned in anecdotes. So something as strange as talking back to your master or your mistress or leaving home um, after midnight. Oh, you know, that's a sign of witchcraft. So during distress or a collective panic, I think any difference would be completely magnified and seen as a potential cause for, for harm. So that's why Marion uh, Gustav's wife, who is a herbalist and a bit of an outsider herself, that's why she's she's so aware of, you know, this sort of mindset that we're all capable of, and that's why she secludes herself from the world. Yeah, very much. I mean, I think I, I wrote it down. I don't want to kind of reveal where it kind of came from because it's a story that she shares, but I think it's, I might be paraphrasing, but I'm pretty sure I wrote down, paraphrased it. Well, sorry, dictated verbatim. Is fear makes people believe all kinds of foolishness. And I think that that's kind of, uh, again, sort of opposed to what storytelling is in the best way possible. So, But it's kind of along the same line. So it's still kind of tipping this, that same part of the human consciousness, I guess, which is... Yeah, inciting just uh, complete terror and, and a collective people and sort of the, the the terrible things that can arise from that. Isn't it crazy that your, your story is set in the 17th century and much of it still applies to kind of what's going on, you know, in 2020, 2021, 2022, contemporary society? Isn't that alarming how little progress was kind of made in some of It's very prophetic, which is, yeah, which is freaking me out like I always have to preface by saying yes it's about, uh, the novel's about the plague but it wasn't in inspired by COVID all these little similarities are just a coincidence so you know staying home and quarantining disinfecting your hands or as Gustav does with cleaning every surface around him with vinegar so yeah all these little things have made it relevant so I'm glad it came out this year I guess it took for a real plague for my plague novel to come out well i'm glad it did and i guess kind of considering we talked a little bit about covid and sort of its effects albeit adjacent to what we've sort of talked about i guess the main thing that we come across or coming up from that is the importance of family and how family is everything and i think that the novel even ends kind of describing that i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say the line but i was like oh yeah because i'm pretty sure that surmises that entirely what is it, do you think, Maggie, that is that makes families what prevail over the sort of tougher conditions where maybe even storytelling can't kind of weather us for it, but families can? What is it about families, do you think, that uh, can make us prevail over these sort of tough times in case storytelling might not be able to do that? 
Mm. Well, families and love, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and whether it's your biological family or a given family or a, fam- or a family that you find, it's that um, unconditional acceptance, I suppose. Mm. Um, and, and Marie finds that more so with her new family, which she finds with Marie, sorry, with Gustave and Marion. Mm. And with her biological family, we know she sort of has to sacrifice a part of herself to keep her parents happy. So um, in the earlier chapters, the family life surrounds obedience and being good and doing what you're told. And her her parents, I think they're good people or slightly Mm. imperfectly grey or slightly flawed but they're sort of products of their place and time. Mm. It's like the indentured servitude, yeah, they're kind of into into that so they're just, yeah, exactly the same product of their time. And for them, Marie being a maid for the Countess would be amazing and Mm. it would be helping her, setting up her for the future, setting themselves up. Um, But at the same time, it feels like, you know, Marie's emotional needs and her own voice are neglected. And this is something that she really sort of rediscovers uh, with Marion and with Gustav, who, who are a lot more tolerant, a lot more open-minded, I guess, and just open Marie up to a new world. Uh, uh, Gustav famously is quite critical of organised religion, uh, for example, and that really uh, shocks Marie and... You know, she's questioning her social and gender roles and, you know, all of a sudden she can wear the same breeches as her brother. And this would have been sort of unspeakable with her own parents. So I suppose family in whatever shape or form can, if it can allow us to express ourselves as, as authentically as, as we can, that's, that's the best thing we can get out of it. Why do you think that... Gustav and Marion are sort of more liberal with their displays of affection or freedom. Is, is it, do you think it's because they're, they're perceived by perhaps more with a social class, like as in a lowly sort of position and they're not so much kind of perceived as someone, I don't know, that's, that's kind of the equivalent to the Countess and uh, Countess, also the Countess to be Josette and the Count in terms of uh, social climbing. Is that where it kind of stems from Maggie in that, in that when you can't go any lower then, then you can do whatever you want? No, I don't think that was the intention behind it. Um, mm. Yeah. I don't think I consciously uh, chose to write them as outsiders. I think mm. when I started writing them, they came to be quite, uh, quite well formed. So socially both, well, Gustav's job is probably a bit lowlier than Marie's parents, but at the same time, he's earning a lot more money, which uh, mm. shocks Marie completely. Um, I think what Gustav and Marion lack is probably, uh, they probably lack a sense of care about what the outside world thinks of them, I guess. Mm. Um yeah, so they're sort of quite happy relishing in their status as outsiders and they live outside the village and I think that sort of grants them their own freedom to be whoever they are. And, yeah, they are quite – their relationship was the funnest one to write. Mm. So, yeah, they sort of overcome a lot together and also separately. So when I talk about their 
their, their younger lives, I suppose. They're definitely, I mean, they're definitely a loving couple. The way I kind of looked at it, I mean, when they're first introduced, when Marie's first introduced them, I don't think that the passages and the descriptions in which she first has meeting them is particularly loving, or I think she kind of likens um, Gustav to a bit of a monster. And he does himself no favours with kind of his appearance and, stuff, and the way he's kind of there with his grizzled beard and stuff. I guess that there was there was also that sort of thing that ran throughout in terms of, and maybe it's 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 something kind of nicely woven in there to teach, particularly uh, for a younger sort of audience, is not to necessarily judge people, not to use too much of a truism, but don't judge a book by its cover, Maggie. I don't know oh, what do you think. No, absolutely. So uh, look at Gustav. Actually, the way he comes in chapter three, you know, mm. his appearance is what sends shivers down Marie's back. Uh, he's quite gnarly. He's very tall. He's got a mangy beard. He's covered in rat bites on his hand. He's wearing dark furs. And as you read the novel, he becomes the sort of the heart or the moral centre of of the novel in a sense. And obviously when you can quite easily contrast him with a man like the Count who is mm. very proper, very noble, very rich, but... I think Marie says at some point, money and class is not what makes a man good. It's your actions and your heart. So, yeah, despite his sort of grisly appearance, I think I wanted to portray Gustav as the sort of mentor or, or the sort of adult that any child would be lucky to have in their lives. I think you've achieved that. I mean, there's definitely at least one point where it shows him being kind to someone that can't afford to, to pay for his services, something like a, as a Nepali sort of farmer. And then there's also the the tricks of the trade, I think, as he calls them, which I kind of don't want to go too much into without spoiling, but I still want to reference enough so that you know exactly what I'm talking about there yep, yep. in terms of the, the trickery of the misers and only the misers. So that sort of stuff, I guess, kind of shows a, a very well-rounded. It's interesting that you mentioned as well that um, the uh, the relationship between Gustav and Marion was one of the funnest to write. And I assume probably the most characters was fun to write as well, because they seem to be fully dimensionalized in terms of the, how fleshed out they are as people. So yeah. Um, yeah. That was kind of my takeaway from it, I guess. I really, really sort of, I, I felt that I was supposed to love them and I and quickly did so. Um, but I guess probably even from the premise I was going to anyway, just with, sure. with it. As a writer and a reader, sorry, um, yeah, you always had those sort of one-dimensional, this is the good guy, this is the bad guy. So I've always wanted to make my characters as grey as possible. So Gustav is, has a very good heart and very good intentions. At the same time, he does have his tricks of the trade and he does things which might be sort of frowned upon by proper uh, upper-class people. Mm. And, um, yeah, obviously his appearance <laughs> um, is very off-putting for some. But, you know, he's the heart of the novel. So I'm always careful not to create, yeah, one-dimensional caricatures. Um, the greyer you can make the character, the better. Because that's what we all are. We're all flawed and imperfect. Yeah, very much. But just out of interest, Maggie, how does that, is it something that you sort of develop over the course of rewrites? Because I know myself, like when I start writing a novel, because uh, I'm pantser, so I just get straight into it and then they're very wooden and they don't really, they're just kind of, they're almost as talking stage pieces until 
I've kind of gotten through that first uh, first draft of taming the terror of the blank page, and then their their backstory keeps being told to me as I continue. I don't know what about you? How does that kind of work with you? It depends on the story, depends on the character, but uh, Gustav came on the on the page pretty fleshed out to be honest. Oh, brilliant! Okay. So yeah, as soon as I started writing, I could see him. I could imagine him. I knew the way this man talked. Um, I could Im- I could imagine him in town. I could imagine him at home. So yeah, so, some characters are, are a lot more difficult, mm. but some just yeah just surprise you and come out fully formed. Yeah, brilliant. Are you a, are you a plotter or a pantser? How's how's that work for you? I don't like to plot too much. I like to have maybe a very rough idea. Yep, and. I like to surprise my myself along the way. So, yeah, in the first drafts, I didn't know where the novel was going. I knew Marie was sent away from home uh, to apprentice for a rat catcher and I knew a plague was coming to her town. And that was the extent of it. So as I sat down and wrote, it sort of went on directions I didn't really expect or initially imagine so it is surprising yourself along the way which I think is probably the, the funnest part of writing in those early stages I know if I plan or overplot everything it just becomes a bit wooden or unenjoyable because I know I'm going from A to B and C and then it becomes like homework it takes that mm. sort of creative element out of it for me but at the same time i I'd like to have that sort of organisation and that um, foresight into where a novel is going, which sometimes I don't. Go on with you. I mean, well, I think you plan more than I do. I don't know where, where it's going and then just, just keep going with it. But, um, yeah. That's the fun of it. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess it's like as, as long as you, you know, because a lot of people talk about the terror of the blank page and I can totally respect that. Um, and I'll, I wish that I kind of could plot more, but um, what you're what you're referring to is having some semblance of a plot, but then not too much coming to then kind of transform it into homework. I could totally get behind that as well, but um, I'm still yet to still yet to get to that point. Maggie, I'm still working at that. Step by step. <laughs> there's no one perfect formula. Just whatever works for you. There's no, yeah, there's no one way. Maggie, what we kind of touched on briefly before in terms of families and how they prevail or can allow us to have some of the more traumatic situations in our life where sometimes maybe storytelling can't do so. I want to know a little bit of a different element we've talked about is there's the family in which we're born with and then there's the family in which we can identify uh, that don't necessarily need to be blood-related to us. What do you think is it that constitutes those family members like how is it that we make our own family members that are not aren't necessarily united by sharing common blood what is that how do we find our own families oh these questions have been stumped um i suppose a shared experience is mm. something that binds or mm. carries us along um as we get older and discover ourselves more, uh, we find that, you know, the people that we are born with or are siblings with, we might not have the same views or values. And uh, we find people who are more like-minded and that's how we sort of find our own people or our own tribe. And 
for me in particular, you know, I've got my friends and I've got my writer friends who are my own little tribe and they know the trials and um, uh, turbulations of getting rejected. You know, my regular friends would be my regular friends. That sounds horrible. My, my other friends would say, oh, yeah, oh, that sucks. That's no good. But, you know, your little tribe or your chosen people know how heart-wrenching it can be. So I suppose that common ground or those shared experiences. And, yeah, so personally, as I get older, you know, I've got my my, my writer tribe and now I've got my mum tribe. And it's, yeah, it's that shared focus or that shame or that shared experience, I guess. Um, and as we get, get older, we all wear our different hats. So, you know, you go from being someone's child, then you have your friend hat or, you know, your worker hat and eventually maybe even a parent hat. So it's all about juggling all these little circles we have. So I hope so. that answers it. it does, no, it does. It, it, <laughs> it, is, it is common ground and it is, yeah, juggling many hats and sort of the common ground and, and what sort of unites us in that regard. So we've talked about family family we're born with the familial sort of ties of, of blood as well as those that we make with common ground with shared experiences with overcoming you know obstacles tragedies etc what about getting even deeper and more inward what about the common traits that are in this case that i saw with the rat catcher's apprentice is the kind-hearted characters stay kind-hearted even to those that are potentially wicked or have wronged them greatly. So when the shoe's on the other foot and they have the opportunity to be horrible to essentially horrible people, they refrain from doing so. Not only do they refrain from doing so, but they also help them out of life and death situations. I'm talking about the climax and I don't want to talk too much about it, but I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about. So what's going on with that, Maggie? How how is it that nice people, kind-hearted people remain kind-hearted, not only... Uh, even when they don't have to be, but to actually be nice to people that have been, you know, terribly, have terribly wronged them or have been wicked in their life. What is it about that, that people can kind of still be nice, even in those sort of circumstances? Sure. I think initially Marie sort of does hunger for revenge against Mm. these not so nice characters who have wronged her and her guardians. And they are in a position to sort of potentially get back at them. Um, but I suppose, yeah, at the heart of these characters who have overcome so much at the expense of these not-so-nice characters, um, I think it's the ability to stay true to oneself, I suppose, Mm. and not to let your thirst for vengeance and and revenge get the better of you, which is such an instinct in a sense, you know. You did something wrong to me, I want to get get back at you so it's it's trying to stay level-headed I suppose or having that sort of yeah that sort of intuition that no this is going against what I know is better I guess yeah it it, it is I mean it it is kind of difficult and it's so easy you know even in our personal lives to to want to to inflict uh ill on those that have wronged us and then to resist that or know that that would be therefore make us no no better or no worse than them for for doing so so in order for that to sort of prevail i mean that's i know we're getting into the real kind of like 
philosophical, what is the human condition type stuff. But yeah, I just noticed that particularly within that sort of kind of climactic scene that sort of mentioned there that, um, yeah, I just felt that the kind characters remained kind even when they didn't need to be and uh, when faced with the people that have wronged them. Sure. And also as a writer, if these characters who, who we are all sort of rooting for, if they are quick to jump to revenge, it would really, really tarnish the character development it's and true. everything they've done so far. So it would be very uncharacteristic, I suppose, uh, from a writer's perspective. And, you know, how does the novel end with the good guy doing something as bad as the bad guy? Um, so I think that whole staying true to who you are has to remain. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the, uh, the old, what is it, um, Shakespeare into the unknown self be true. Absolutely. We've talked about uh, historic, your historical research, uh, the pairing back of that or determining what was going to go in, mindful of the audience in which it was intended for. Uh, whenever it comes to historical fiction, I'm always fascinated to know as to how, what you deem to be some of the most important elements to create that strong sense of place and era. Because um, I never get to, I never get the same answer twice. So for you, Maggie, what was it that you sort of needed to get right, or what did you think was of paramount importance to really create that age and that era for people that potentially, particularly for younger readers? might not be all that well-versed in that era or none of the goings-on of that time period. Sure. I think, uh, for me, the most important thing was get, getting Marie, who's my protagonist, getting her voice uh, just right. So mm. I wanted her to be a product of her time and place and family. But at the same time, I wanted her to hunger for more and question the world around her. I wanted her to have her own ambitions and aims. And slowly, as uh, as the novel progresses, we discover these a lot more. And what she initially thought was impossible does become possible for a girl living in a very small town in in small yeah small town in France in the seventeenth century. And this is obviously, you know, taking some liberties with historical fiction because you know this wouldn't really happen in the real world, I guess. So. Uh, pairing some modern characteristics with a part of womanhood in 17th century was something I really wanted to explore. And in terms of description and the sense of place, like I mentioned, the town itself is fictional, mm. but I wanted it to come alive as much as I could. So, yeah, I was sort of conscious of my descriptions of it. So I wanted young readers living in, you know, suburban Australia to imagine the muddy cobbled streets and the smells coming out of houses and rats running rampant around town and, you know, the rat catcher going from house to house chanting about his services. So I, I did want young readers who were, who had probably very little historical knowledge to pick up this book and be sort of, transformed i guess to a different place and yeah i hope i've done a good job with that you have you have you absolutely have and i'm so lucky to be able to talk to you about it on the show and get to hear everything about it because yeah it was definitely felt like a novel that was written for me so i'm not i'm, not, I'm far from being a um a small child or young adult but yeah definitely um that's why i was so interested as well maybe because i never felt like 
and I know that we talked earlier about how it's, you know, uh, I guess the best kind of young adult books, et cetera, middle grade books would, would be something in which they're not necessarily, the line's blurred, it's no longer so delineated as to what age bracket it's supposed to apply to. Um, and I think that you nailed that. And also in terms of the not being coddled as well. So uh, not being not being gratuitous. And mind you, when I was in the age bracket, which I think um, the book might have been more intended for or potentially intended for, uh, I mean, I was reading Stephen King books and stuff like that. So certainly I was into the gratuitous sort of stuff. But you've definitely handled it very, very well and definitely there in terms of uh, the nice balance of creating this sort of real, uh, fully realised story but um, not kind of... Uh, getting too gratuitous there. I don't think you'd be getting any sort of angry phone calls or, or letters from distressed or disgruntled parents about, uh, about I haven't received on. any yet. Well, <laughs> but thank you so much. That means a lot to know that it has been balanced quite well. I was worried about the amount of deaths, you know, that result from the plague. Um, no, no. My, my hat, it was handled well. Yeah, no, my hat honestly goes off to you, Maggie, because I, I would imagine, and I'm not surprised when you're saying that uh, you would have gotten, you probably would have gotten fair bit of rejection in terms of people saying, where can I place this on a shelf? Uh, it's just too dark, uh, that sort of stuff. So as someone that uh, has written dark stuff before, um, you know, I really, I really have a high amount of respect for people that endeavour to continue doing that and, you know, capture the vision in which they've originally seen there in their mind's eye on paper and uh, continue to send it out until it finds its, its proper home. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, librarians have been actually very lovely and have been saying, oh, I love this novel. Um, I'm going to recommend it to all my young readers. So it's been a really nice, um, refreshing change for me to experience having the novel out where people are saying, oh, it's great. It's amazing. I love it. And, you know, a few years I was saying, I was just getting rejections. This is wrong with it. That's wrong with it. So it's taking a real sort of mind shift for me to say, oh, it's out. People actually like it. You don't have to worry about rejections anymore. So I'm hoping it's finding its nice little place in kids lit, um, especially when the kids lit section is so saturated with celebrity authors because, mm. you know, anyone can be a children's author now by the looks of it. You know, we've got comedians, football players, yeah. yeah, they they sell up. They sell they sell big time. They do big sell, time. yeah. Big or fad books, you know. Yeah, you touched on it, and I want to end on it because it's always the the juicy question that I always I'm always dying to find out the answer to. So you mentioned about there was a period where you're getting rejections, etc. What I wanted to know, Maggie, is the if you had any particular period in your in your writerly career, whether it was a, a short period or a long one, where you almost gave up so you're sort of at a crossroads of the journey and you uh kind of considered seriously considered putting down pen or the digital equivalent of picking it up again and if that was the case if you did experience that what enabled you to kind of overcome that or continue to push through into what is now jump forward speaking to me your humble host samuel on the right way podcast Oh, no, that was definitely the case for me. So back in 2017, I was actively pitching and one publisher, a dream publisher at the time, was very interested mm. and we were going back and forth for about seven months. Can you make an edit? Can you rewrite this, rewrite that? And as an emerging author, you're so eager to please. Yep. I was, yes, 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 I can do anything. Yep. Just say yes, take my novel. 
on and after seven months of going back and forth it just fizzled out so I love the novel but it didn't make it to acquisitions was what the editor said and I was absolutely just crushed yeah and I was ready to give up Mm. um somehow and this was around the time when I got pregnant and we were building a house and busy with all other stuff so this novel was really on the back burner for a while and all in all it probably received about no jokes about a hundred rejections if I'm counting agents and publishers and prizes and between 2017 and 2020 I was just sort of working on it here and there and it got to about yeah 2020 and I was like you know what feels like I've tried every single publisher Mm. in Australia every single agent and yeah this is it either I'm going to just completely rewrite it and make it a completely different story or just give up on it and yep you know we had a good time we had a good run I might have to give this story up and mm. of course, as cliche as it sounds, that's when I got a phone call from my now publisher, Anna Solving at midnight time. And, you know, I was like, oh, it's a phone call from a publisher. What can she want? I'm like, oh, anybody, it's going to be just, you know, to talk or say, can you change this? We like this, but we don't like that. I'm like, oh, whatever. So I wasn't even that optimistic. And yeah, on the phone call, she's like, we would like to make you an offer. We would like to make you a deal. So. Yeah, as soon as you're ready to give up, I suppose it can happen. Um, so, yeah, it took me close to seven years to get this strange novel out there. And, you know, I heard every single rejection under the sun, it feels like. So, you know, there's no place for this book on our market. Your writing is too formal. The title, The Rat Catcher's Apprentice, is too similar to The Rat Catcher's Daughter. So, you know, that that doesn't work. And... You know, some rejections, you're like, yeah, whatever, I can forget about it. But others sting more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So some sting more than others. And after years of grinding, you can't help but feel like crap about yourself or about your work. But I, I suppose the advice I would give other emerging writers is just to as cliche as it sounds, is um, just stay loyal or stay faithful to your own vision. You can't please everyone. Try pleasing yourself. Try putting a story out there that you're happy with. Because even with this novel, if I gave it to one friend or one mentor, they would give me a hundred different tips. So it was about learning that you can't please everyone. Um, Start with pleasing yourself with the story and hopefully you find that one person who says yes and also just knowing that your journey is not going to be the same as anyone else's, you know, there's no one right way or there's no one, um, or there's not a set time frame. It might take you two years. It might take you six months. It might take you 10 years. Mm. Just yeah, keep pushing and keep, keep putting the best quality work as you can out there. No, it's honestly brilliant advice, particularly because particularly I like the, um, that you don't compare your journey to other people because I think that's very, very true. And yeah, be write something that you like that you yourself are proud of and, and, and like rather than kind of trying to cater to other people. Because yeah, you're right. You send it out to 20 different people, you get 20 different sort of uh, widely contrasting or clashing sort of uh, bits of feedback about how to do it. So yeah, I guess that's another part of it is to vet that and you know take from that what's what's helpful, but um, not to let your your brain kind of melt. 
with with all the different sorts of feedback that you'll get because they're always going to be conflicting. And also fads, you know, you can't write for a particular hot thing on the market, you know. (laughs) Yeah. You're not going to please yourself. It's going to come across as very disingenuous, I guess, if you're trying to follow what's really selling or, you know, try and follow the footsteps of an author that you really admire and try and write the same way as them or same sort of themes. So just letting it happen as naturally as possible. Yeah, you, you've got to put so much of yourself into it. It's literally like a piece of your soul. So if you can't do that, um, you know, for thousands of thousands upon thousands of hours of, of writing and rewriting and redrafting and then battling on top of all that, battling the, the many um, rejections, like you said, and yeah, some of them kind of won't sting that much and then others will really kind of uh, pretty much eviscerate you in terms of how badly they are depending upon obviously what else is kind of going on in your life at the time that you get them. Cause normally I find that um, life's not going too good. That's when you get a flurry of, oh. of particularly bad ones that you just got to kind of go oh, and then read it and then just, uh, yeah, just move on. Don't read it again. Read it one time. <laughs> I feel that's uh, when you have to do something just kind for yourself. Yeah. Baths, chocolate, um, reading, uh, good, good novels that sort of stuff. Yeah. Keeping a death list of all the people. Yeah, that absolutely. <laughs> abs- absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Maggie, don't forget. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm so glad that you didn't compromise your vision. I'm so glad that you pushed through with the, with the, you know, less than helpful feedback there and you kept going. Um, I always love speaking to writers, but I particularly enjoy speaking to writers that write stuff that's a bit off the sort of uh, beaten track, a little bit more fringe, a little bit different, uh, particularly taking with risks uh, and you know, for, for different sort of audiences. So yeah, I was really, I really enjoyed your novel and I really enjoyed speaking to you tonight on the show. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. It's been a pleasure. So everyone, there you have it. That was me and Maggie Yonkolovska talking about her debut novel, The Rat Catcher's Apprentice. So huge thanks to Maggie Yonkolovska for talking to me on the program tonight about her debut novel, The Rat Catcher's Apprentice, thoroughly, uh, original and entertaining and overall thrilling uh, novel I would classify as. So an absolute pleasure to talk to Maggie Onkolowska about The Rat Catcher's Apprentice on the show. So thank you very much to Maggie for talking to me tonight. And thank you, while I'm in the thank you mood, thank you so much for you listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program, as well as all other episodes of the show as well in that what we like to refer to as the ever proliferating back catalogue there so if you haven't already give a cheeky follow on Spotify or listen on SoundCloud and yeah get get stuck back into that ever proliferating back catalogue as we like to refer to it and hear all the other episodes now uh, 60 plus episodes of the show I think my goodness can't even believe those numbers or the caliber and content on the quality of the guests that keep coming so it's an absolute pleasure to speak to all of them and yeah i'm just the show going gangbusters is just uh so lovely beyond my wildest imaginings that we ever kind of get to this point so yeah thank you so much for you uh aiding and abetting that um pursuit of the show and yeah if you haven't already get get listening with all the others and make sure to tell your friends your family your enemies about the show as well so that everyone gets gets aware of it uh, as well and thank you so much to those that um, tell me about the show when I meet you at events like the one last week with the uh, Haley Dirt Town launch that was yeah just uh, just absolutely delightful to have people talk about uh, how much they enjoy the show so rest assured I'm going to keep doing it 
but in the interim, uh, you have a lovely evening now or daytime or whatever time this is you're listening to this on. And rest assured, I've got a lot more episodes of the show coming your way. But for now, farewell. <laughs>